Hey friends, I'm so, so thrilled to be bringing you season three of That's What She Did podcast. That's right, season three of this tiny little podcast that started out as a simple experiment. And here we are with season three. As is our tradition, we are launching during Women's History Month. And this season, I'm bringing you a theme that is unapologetic. Each episode is organized under the umbrella of unapologetic women. These are women unapologetically pursuing whatever lights their fire, both past and present. I'm bringing you stories of these incredible rabble-rousers, truth-tellers, and artists that are lighting fires all over the place, or that history books did not make the appropriate space for. The season is going to be such a good time, and I'm so happy that you're here with me. So buckle up and let's get started. It's me again, Tangier Renee, and I'm excited to bring you this week's episode of That's What She Did podcast. I have with me Shahira Quadrat. She is an Afghan-American author of the book, Authenticity in America. She's also a cross-cultural leadership coach and consultant and founder of an organization called Multi-American Moxie. We had a really great conversation talking about her work in cross-cultural leadership and corporate consulting where she spends a lot of time having to school rooms of powerful white men on diversity and inclusion. On top of that, we go into things like our righteous anger and diversity fatigue. It's a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And I certainly hope that you'll learn more about Shahira and her new book, Authenticity in America. Thanks again for joining me for another week. Let's get started. Welcome to the show, Shahira. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for being on the show with us this week. So happy to be here. Thank you. So, Shahira, you are a cross-cultural leadership guide and corporate consultant. Ah, that is a big title. <laughs> um, yes. What is that? <laughs> That's a great question. So cross-cultural leadership guide and consultant basically comes into either corporations um, and looks at the organizational culture and how it relates to uh, uplifting the women within that organization. So from the intersections of gender, uh, race, we talk about ethnicity, how all of that plays into the women leaders in the organization and what we can do to make it a better place for them to grow. Interesting. So how did you get into that profession? You know, as I was um, growing in my own skin in the corporate world, what I noticed is, you know, I I had a lot of potential to grow into the different type of leadership roles. I've been in director roles, um, VP roles, and ultimately, as I was going into these leadership programs that were designed by these corporations, what I realized was that there was no um, template that worked for me. You know, you sort of go through the motions to learn about what leadership is, what it means. Um, You know, there was a whole movement um, around this, I think in the early 2000s, it sort of became culture of corporations. 
Um, however, none of those um, none of those forums really spoke to me, and I realized at some point that there are a lot of women there um, right now, you know, in middle management roles, and there always seems to be something <laughs> that keeps them from moving to the next level. Um, and a lot of it is the internal. Like I call it the in- internal game, um, and we often don't focus on that in corporate, right? Because there's a lot of liability there around, you know, getting into the personal space. So I think working with a consultant is a safe way for a corporation to enhance their um, enhance their women leaders. And so that's what I created. I created something that I knew I would have benefited from years ago um, in that role. Why do you think that that women in leadership or women of color in leadership or whatever, you know, marginalized group of people you want to call out are still struggling to make their way? I shouldn't say they're still struggling. Why is the the structure around them still struggling with mm-hmm. opening up the doors for them? I mean, <laughs> what's really amazing is just before we we got on and started recording I was wasting time on social media as one <laughs> likes to do and <laughs> I came across this post of um somebody who's in speaking and she like coaches speakers and mm-hmm. and does that kind of work and she put this post on that was like listen diversity and speaking is still a problem and it's still a problem for people and organizations that say that they want diverse speakers in their Mm -hmm. conferences and at their events. And basically they're just playing lip service to it. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, we're still, we are having the same conversation over and over and over again. And Mm -hmm. is it because organizations, corporations, individuals know it makes them look good to say they want diversity? Absolutely. Um, I think there's a little bit of a misconception. And the problem is, you know, we've sort of played out these words. We've played out the word diversity. We've played out the word inclusion. And, you know, equity, equality, all of this is sort of a part of a conversation that has been ongoing for a while. But really, where's the impact? Where, how Do we actually see women growing in different roles? Do we actually see women of color. I mean, if you look at the um, Colorado Women's Foundation, you know, they did a study recently, and I believe that, you know, white women were making 83 cents on the dollar for every male. But when you add the intersection of race, you know, uh, black women or Native American women were making around 60, you know, 50 to 60 cents on the dollar. And so, you know, again, let's go back to the root you know, part of this conversation, what what does equity mean for us? What does inclusion mean? What does diversity mean? Um, I do believe that there are a lot of, there's systematic racism, there's systematic, you know, genophobic systems that exist today around us. And, you know, the corporations are just creating systems that were, um, they were developed for men, they were developed for white males, and, and, and we're, we're working within those systems. Um, so yes, you know, you know, we do need diversity and we do need inclusion, but let's get back to the basics of what we're trying to achieve here, which is, you know, this is a game for all of us to play. You know, this isn't, you know, Hey, women of color, let's get together and, you know, have a conversation about, um, you know, what it means 
um, inequality for us. This is engaging all of us. This is engaging white people. This is engaging women. This is engaging men and, and looking at it from a place of, you know, necessity. Our, our economic um, growth depends on a full, fully participative, you know, um, uh, society. And so how do we get everyone involved in that conversation without necessarily creating this fatigue that's made all of this diversity work exhausting to talk about sort of played out and you know there's almost this lackluster desire to to do what um and i think that's become lost in translation and and why we're facing these issues we are today yeah i hear you one thing that comes to mind though when you say that is i wonder if the problem has more to do with the perceived idea of scarcity around power Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm um, and maybe it's not perceived. Um, it seems that in order for, you know, women of color or, again, whatever the marginalized, insert marginalized group here, mm-hmm. um, in order for them to, in order to achieve equity, mm-hmm. then the powers that be have to give up power or at least some yes. measure of power. And yes. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. But is it that perceive, is it the loss of power that is really the thing that they're like, that people are going, oh, we understand that we're supposed to want equity. We just Mm -hmm. don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, I think the biggest thing that creates separation um, for all people is a lack of conversation. You know, I mean, let's be honest, um, white people might be afraid to come into a conversation where they don't understand the right terminology to use. They feel afraid about bringing up diversity because maybe, you know, there there's bias all around us. All of us have bias, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity. Um, we all see the world in which was shaped for us based on our experiences. And so I think first and foremost, there's a fear. Talk about this, you know, this whole concept of power. Um, there is a power struggle, but it's mostly based on fear, fear and loss. That's what humans react to. They react to the loss of a situation. And so, you know, what is the perceived fear here? That there is a loss of power? Um, how do we change that narrative so that it's it's not necessarily power, but there's a lack of collaboration and, and inclusion here? The inclusion being that the conversation that might, you know, be relevant for all of us isn't being had at the tables where decisions are being made. And so how do we expand that table and create a, an environment that doesn't necessarily generate fear, but have conversations about really important issues, um, you know, understanding that there's the intersection of identity politics, you know, the sort of social construct um, that, that creates separation. Um, you know, power and this, this whole illusion of power comes from a place of, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's almost like... Um, this self-fulfilling um, pro- prophecy, you know, you isolate yourself because you think you have power, but at the end of the day, it's, it's isolated when not everybody can benefit from it. Mm-hmm. So to your earlier point, this work is hard. It's exhausting. <laughs> it is. Why do you do it? <laughs> oh, great question, right? Um, I think we all fall into diversity fatigue and, and you know, that's a real thing, it's, Especially for women of color, um, you know, we we tend to have these conversations um, internally within our own social groups, and then we go outside, and then 
were, um, quote, the poster children for diversity, right? Let's, let's mm-hmm. hire that, that woman of color. Let's hire that um, man of color so that they can present, you know, present their race and, hey, you know, we're being inclusive. This is what we're sort of putting on, on, um, on stage for everyone to see. But, you know, the work itself is, is, is exhausting because not everyone is participating, and this is why I go back to let's share that workload. You know, I need my white friends as involved in this conversation as my black friends are or my Afghan friends or my brown friends. All of this, all of this needs to be seen from a more um, wider scope or else, again, we're putting all the pressure on one group or one group of people to speak on behalf of what? A whole race, a whole, a whole gender, a whole ethnicity. And that that's scary. That's exhausting. And, and again, we're going away from this whole concept of inclusion. So who do you see as not fully participating? Well, I, I mean, obviously, I think there's a lot of um, groups right now uh, because of the identity uh, um, politics and the um, social structure that we were in. There's a lot of fear right now for the different racial groups. Um, you know, we sit here and we talk about diversity um, you know, there, there's different, um, ways to sort of look at bias. How, how are people bias? Um, and when we look at those individually, for example, as, as a race, like if I come into a room and I say, Hey, I need everyone participating. And I'm, and I'm talking to a group of white women, you know, my conversation really needs to be focused on, you know, let's talk about why it's important for us to have these conversations. You know, when I, when I say that, um, you know, when I say white women or when I say I'm walking into a room of men, because that's really the, the um, and a lot of times when I'm walking into a corporate environment, it's, it's a room of men. It's a group of white men that I'm speaking to trying to, you know, have this conversation. It's very hard to connect with them when, you know, it really needs to be a larger conversation. So it, it has to be people who are currently in power. It has mm-hmm. to be it has to be white women. It has to be white men. And it has to be a collaborative space where, you know, we're willing to accept each other for our differences before we, you know, try to, um, before we try to, quote, fix issues. You know, there, there has to be a relationship. And so these, the lack of the relationship between these different groups um, is, is causing this sort of exhaustion. And, and it, you know, it's across the board. It's across the board. I feel like I have so many questions. I don't even know. Where <laughs> That's okay. That's called diversity fatigue. It's all great. I know. I like. I'm saying this is the space that I live in. I feel like all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really like directly do diversity work. Um, right. But right. It's, I'm always thinking about it. <laughs> absolutely absolutely and you know that's that's a great thing it's a great space to be in and um you know i was talking to um a colleague of mine a while back and she's like oh you're you know she she was she's in hr and she's like oh that's great you're in diversity and inclusion work you know that's a great um place to be for the next 10 years because we're you know that's kind of the hot topic I sort of thought to myself, like, you know, how do we get away from, <laughs> how do we get away from this idea where diversity inclusion is is a hot topic and mm-hmm. maybe a marketable subject? Because, you know, we're we're in this situation um, we are today where all these groups are feeling, you know, disjointed from each other and separate from each other. You know, people aren't being heard. There's sort of this transfer of power you've seen in these small microcosm, you know, whether it's a, it's in small pockets of the government in small communities where, you know, you sort of see this uprising of, of women. And 
you know, how do we make this a bigger conversation about creating a space that, you know, while I'd love to not have these conversations, how do we make this a part of our um, social, social structure where kids and, and children at a young age are learning to have these conversations so that we don't necessarily have to do, quote, diversity and inclusion work. It's just, you know, how do we be more considerate? <laughs> let's, let's take the, you know, put, take it down into layman terms. How do I be considerate of my neighbor? How do we, how do I be considerate of my coworker knowing that they come from a completely different background slash universe than, you know, than I could even imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, I, this shouldn't be a trend and, and it shouldn't be on a few people to come and, you know, do the work, quote, do the work and, you know, create these programs for us to participate in where, Again, the, the conversation is, is broader. Where are we having those broader conversations? Do you think there's any place for righteous anger in the conversation? Oh, that's, that's a wonderful question. Because <laughs> <laughs> I oh. vacillate between like righteous anger and, and complete like, I cannot today. <laughs> and I'm, I just cannot. Don't talk to me. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's because, you know, that, and I'll tell you, righteous anger has its place. Anger is, nece- it's necessary for us because it's, it's a, it's a platform for motivation. Um, and especially when it's in the construct of, of, you know, social justice, or we feel we've been wronged, um, that anger is so- sort of what carries us and motivates us to really think through, you know, how we want to make changes. So, so there's a place for that. I think what happens with, uh, you know, righteous anger is when it manifests into, um, this place where you're consumed by it. If you're mm-hmm. consumed by your anger, then you're not necessarily working from a place of creativity. You may be working from a place of, you know, revenge, or uh, you may be working, you, you know, in an expression of of anger itself. And and honestly, I don't, you know, I don't. I find myself just like you, vacillating between the two, especially with the, you know, the high level you know, social media slash just news that we're all exposed to the level of data that we have coming at us every day around, you know, again, this, this inequitable social constructs. So, you know, I'm angry, and I want to do something about it. And some days I'm like you, I just want to, you know, go under my bed sheets and I want to cover my, you know, cover my face and not talk about it. But, you know, it's not going to move the needle forward. I'm not going to be able to help move the needle forward, which for me, you know, is very, I'm very passionate about women moving forward or, you know, increasing their um, visibility on the spectrum of leadership, on, in C-suite leadership. Um, but if I'm working from a place of anger, there's no way I'm going to be able to think of really cool programs <laughs> that can help them get there. And so I think anger has a place and it's a great sense of motivation. But the, the bigger question is how do we keep ourselves in a place where we're moderating that for ourselves and we're able to come I'm out of that um, to be more constructive and to live in the society, which, you know, is a reality for us um, and not necessarily in this idealistic <laughs> fashion that we all sort of create in our, in our brains. So mm-hmm. it's very frustrating, but, you know, reality, we choose to work in this. So, you know, how do we take care of ourselves? Um, so we're not mm-hmm. angry all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <and> the, with <laughs> ulcers. <laughs> Right, health problems. That now you're too busy in the hospital or trying to rest, so you can't really do the work. Right? Yeah, <laughs> cycle. Exactly. Um, I want to ask you about a couple of things. Mm-hmm. 
first multi-American Moxie. So mm-hmm. this is, as I understand it, an organization that you founded. That's um, right. That's right. Tell us more about that. So multi-American Moxie, um, it was sort of, a, I'll call it a, a creation, a little, I, I birthed this idea of common experiences that bring women of multi-ethnic background together. Um, and, you know, this this idea has sort of been, um, it's just been in, in my head for the past few years because I've worked with women, specifically with multi-ethnic women in leadership roles. And I've noticed that when we were, you know, in, in the relationship, in the storytelling process of our relationship, like, oh my gosh, you know, my family this, or, you know, I had an experience with uh, my husband or my children or my grandmother, <laughs> or I can't believe, you know, I have to take a, a month off for Ramadan, for example, like you typically have these, <laughs> you have these conversations, um, you know, with people who can relate to you. And I found that it was always someone who came from a hyphenated identity. They were, you know, women who strongly related to being Mexican-American, Afghan-American, Persian-American, um, you know, and it's just, it, it hit me at some point that, you know what, there, the, the common here is we all have a dual culture, a dual culture that we both subscribe to. And because of that, our stories resonate. Our stories are similar. You know, grew up with the same type of parents, um, you know, who were very strong in their own maybe ethnicities or origins or religion. And so that impacted how we viewed the world. Um, and because we viewed the world in a similar way, this idea of multi-American moxie or, or you know, having having a moxie to step out of that um, and and look at the world and, and you know, feel confident in living in two worlds. Like I, I, I see myself as an Afghan American woman or, or a Muslim American woman. And there was a time in my life, um, you know, not too long ago, I want to say even a few years ago, where I was very careful who I um, spoke of my identity to, right? So we talk about, again, this social construct that we live in. Um, you know, after, you know, shortly before Trump was elected, you know, 2016, or maybe even earlier than that, you know, there wasn't so much fear. But now it's like people are afraid to talk about their identity. But identity is key to everything. And if I can come in with this concept of yes, let me, you know, hi, I'm Shahira. I'm a multi American woman, an Afghan American woman, I'm a Muslim American woman, you are going to understand in context, why I speak the way I do you know, why I tell my stories the way I do, you know, why I value the things that I do and, and saying it with pride and sharing those stories and celebrating those experiences um, really gave way to the whole moxie idea. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I think it's um, really interesting. And I think really important to have spaces mm-hmm. for people to connect over these kinds of things. Yes. Um, because like you, I, I grew up I have a, a a highly hyphenated identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm biracial, and my mm-hmm. stepfather, who raised me, is Saudi. Spent mm-hmm. a lot of time going back and forth between the U.S. and living in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, that time when September 11th happened, I had just started college. Yeah, and all of a sudden, overnight, as everyone knows, we were living in a different world. Absolutely. And prior to that, I didn't think a lot about my relationship to Arabic or 
Islamic culture, uh-huh. my close proximity to it, you know? <laughs> and immediately that day, I all of a sudden I felt like I needed to hide it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a real, you know, it's a really weird space to grow up in. You know, now as an adult, I don't do that at all. Like, I don't care who knows. <laughs> I don't care if you have a problem with it. Right. Like, <laughs> right. You want to go toe-to-toe with me about it? Let's do that. Um, but here's my question about that. In the context of, of identity politics, mm-hmm. which is currently the bad word. Honestly, right. Right. right? <laughs> I think some argue that creating something like a multi-American moxie group or, you know, all of a sudden, and I think I've noticed in the last couple of years, there's a lot more organization around people coming together around their cultural or racial identities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think some would argue that there is such a thing as being too niche, too focused on cultural or racial identities. And that, in fact, is what causes the division in America that we see now. Right. Well, so there's, so you hit on a really good point, you know, this, this concept of, of America, and I sort of talk about this and I was invited to do a TED talk um, last year. And, you know, the whole concept was showing up. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, showing up meant in the context of, you know, pure authenticity, who I see myself as and, you know, who I really am and and what I bring to this world. And, and I get that there's this, uh, I'll say a debate and criticism around this idea of varying movements. So, you know, getting people together in a group does not necessarily mean disuniting this idea of a broader America. That is a misconception. You are creating strength by giving people, people a group to relate to. And that I think is a very great um, point to, to drive on. You know, people feel disunited or they feel apart from something when they feel fear, when they feel like can't relate. Um, and I'll go back to a very uh, an interesting um, example from my days as, a, as an advocate coordinator for a nonprofit organization. Um, we had a young girl who was uh, 15 and she was in the welfare system because, you know, her mother had her at a age. She was given up for adoption or, you know, she went through the system many years. Her, the result of this um, action of, of her life basically gave her identity issues because um, she was in and out of homes through failed adoptions and failed foster families. And, you know, uh, she was a white, white, American <laughs> uh, female, and she got up in front of the judge one day as I was in the courtroom, sort of listening to to her speak, and said, "You know, the, the judge asked her a very simple question. He said, what is your name?' You know, and she and she sat there for a minute, and she said her first name, and then, you know, the judge asked her to say her full name, and she stopped." And she said, I don't know what my full name is. I don't know who I am and I don't know where I belong. And, you know, in that moment, I realized this 15-year-old girl who, you know, was probably going through her sort of own identity crisis was so far removed from her own roots and, you know, felt felt that she had been failed by this system that had been raising her and these abusive families. And all she wanted was connection. 
all she wanted was connection and to understand where her roots were from. And, you know, it, it really made me think in that moment that, you know, again, this concept of who we are, our identity, our roots, you know, they formulate our own opinions of ourselves. And so when you start to, you know, say that creating division, you know, is a result of trying to find who we are in this world, I think that's counterintuitive. I think that makes us less American because we are not celebrating the things that make us American, which is what brought us here in the first place, our differences. America is a land of immigrants. It's a land of migrants and a land of people who were, you know, fleeing persecution. That is our history. And, you know, whether we want to acknowledge that and, and grow that or continue to fight it because now we are exclusive, we've somehow, be, you know, excluded ourselves from the broader global community, then that will become who we decide we are. But, you know, again, the, the nature and the movement of these smaller groups, I think, creates a, a more powerful grassroots organization for this sort of civil um, civil action. You want people to get involved. You want people to make change. First of all, let's address their identity and their strength and their identities and roots. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for explaining it uh, that way, because this is one of the topics where I very quickly descend into righteous anger. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's so easy to go there. Tashio. It's so easy. <laughs> I know, so I'm always like, let me take a step back. (laughs) Let me breathe. (laughs) Let me remind myself who I am. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. This is who you are. This is what you bring. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) No, I I agree. And a lot of of times I feel like, you know, you hear the the talking heads and they're all like identity politics, this and these groups that are organizing around their cultural identities are really, they're subversive, right? Right, right. It's like the kind of the language that I use. And, and I see that happening. And I think, well, really what's happening is that you understand that the, abil- the ability of people to organize themselves is extremely powerful. Absolutely. <laughs> and you are trying to stomp all over that civil right. Right, right. Which is very, which is made clear in the Constitution. Exactly. Because going back to our earlier conversations, you don't want to give up any power. <laughs> well, well, first of all, you you know you you bring this idea of polarization, right? So uh, I want to re- want to keep things as they are. I hear that a lot sometimes, where people are like, "Oh, back in the old days, I you know mm-hmm. I wish it, I wish we were back in the old times." And I keep thinking to myself, "Well, I, I get that. That's you know that's probably said in a very innocent." Um, or un, un misunderstood context, but who does that benefit? Who does the mm-hmm. polarization benefit? Um, and and you sit back and you think about it, and you know, in these in these groups that are you know trying to infuse this um, negative idea around you know grassroots um, groups trying to you know really ponder on the things that they can do to make change. It's, it's, it's very sad. It's very sad to see this sort of cultural war um, and this dividing politics, because it's almost like it's counterintuitive to what we're trying to do. You know, don't mm-hmm. objectify this idea of being American by, you know, trying to tell us that there is this, you know, objectification of small groups. It's counterintuitive to being American. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah, it's very, very easy to go there. But I see that as a tool, uh, just like 
anything else. There, there are different tools. Um, and that's, you know, infusing this idea around smaller groups getting together, talking. You know, mm-hmm. how can I make negative is sort of how I see it. Who does that benefit? Who does it benefit when smaller groups get together and, and have discussions? So. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, you know, one thing I noticed over the last couple of years is there's been a lot of groups of people coming together. Like you're doing multi-American Moxie. There's mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. last week I had a local Denver filmmaker on um, Rebecca Henderson, who created a, a group for I think it's called More Than One Box mm-hmm. um, for yeah. multiracial people to come together. Uh-huh. Um, there's in the last couple of years, there's like all of these podcasts talking about, you know, hyphenated identities, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really a good thing and really interesting. Um, where do you, why do you think now, like really particularly in the last couple of years, there seems to be just this, these people coming out and going, we're here, we're going to do this. So, um, let me circle back to your original point, righteous anger. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. It serves, it serves its place. Um, you know, if I, if I constantly see social misappropriation or injustice in front of me and I decide that I'm going to do something about it because it's just too much now, right? The, the headlines are just too much. The stories coming from my friends and family are just too much. I've, I've almost reached this precipice of tolerance and, you know, I, I don't want to deal with that anymore, right? So what am I mm-hmm. going to do? I'm going to, take, I'm going to take action against that. And that, you know, that is a result of these um, identity groups coming together and, and having a conversation. And so I think that's where you start to see all these groups pop up and, you know, depending on the content delivery system, you know, people, some people like to have conversations, some people like to, you know, um, you know, process and talk things through. Some people like to write about, you know, their, their issues. Um, So I think that, you know, all of that is, is a result of what we're seeing. Um, And so that helps us. I think we're seeing all these groups and, you know, if they decide to band together and create larger groups or, you know, whatever, however they decide to deliver their um, content, it's, it's positive for all of us. And now is the time to do it because now is the time where people are seeing the actual, um, I want to say the uh, results, the results of um, our current social status. You know, we're, we're starting to see things more. The content is out there. The voices are being raised and that's what we want. If we want to, we want to create a world of belonging, then we're going to have to speak up however that looks and whatever that looks like to people. Mm-hmm. And was that a, a big reason why you decided to create Multi-American Moxie? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was to create a forum for women to have some safe conversations around things that make us multi-American. So, you know, I bring up, um, you know, this idea, <laughs> you'll laugh at it, but like a lot of Muslims growing up, we loved Christmas, don't you? <laughs> yeah. You were just like, right? Like, hey, why can't we have a tree? Why can't we, you know. Get we did in my house. I'll just say like. <laughs> We exactly. did. <laughs> and, and, my, like my, and my mom isn't even, my mom is Christian. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. like add that to the context, <laughs> right. you know, Muslim, Saudi 
father, Christian, American woman. Mm -hmm. That's (laughs) awesome. You have a lot of hyphens. (laughs) Yeah. And so there was, there were Christmas trees and, you know, all the other stuff that came with it. (laughs) Exactly. So there was a sort of like envy, right? So I remember having a conversation in, in a Facebook forum with one of our, you know, members where she was just like, oh my God, like, (laughs) it's that time of year. Like, I can't have a tree, but I love going to my friends' houses. So yes, please invite me to Christmas parties. You don't have to call them holiday parties. You can call them Christmas parties. Like, just invite me. I, you know, I want to be with your family. Like, there's this sense the community that happens all across America, right? So, mm-hmm. so there, there's this envy around it. And, um, you know, and again, very innocent, like you want some things, you, you see happiness, you see something positive, you, you sort of gravitate towards it. And, you know, when you're having this conversation with maybe a room of, um, you know, Christian white women, they may, <laughs> American women, they may not necessarily understand like, okay, well, that's sort of weird. Um, that's funny and weird, but the humor or maybe some of the context is misunderstood. And so it's having those conversation in the forums and laughing and celebrating with people who can relate. Cause I'll tell you, so many people jumped on that conversation. They're like, me too. You know, like <laughs> I couldn't wait to move out of my house, you know, growing up because now I have a tree in my own house, you know, it's just mm-hmm. like, oh my God. Um, but, and that, that sort of laughter, there's nothing wrong with bringing um, people together to create a sense of belonging. Um, and that's, you know, just really like sort of an anecdotal funny story. And you know, I, I take that same approach with bigger conversations. You know, sometimes we're afraid to talk about, you know, how we're treated in the workplace, you know, on the more serious side. And so, you know, having a, a community of women where I can just turn to and say, hey, you know, can you just come and talk to my group or can you just have a private conversation with me around this topic? Um, it, it's not, and I'll take the word safe back. I don't believe in safe spaces. I create, I believe in brave spaces. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, you know, that is a place where you're going to, you know, you have a little bit more courage. It's safe to have a little bit more courage to ask for what you need. Um, and, and that's all that is. It's, it's creating conversation. How, how do we create more conversation, the things that really matter to us? Mm, yeah, I, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And the Christmas tree stories. Yes, that was my the house. Christmas tree debate. <laughs> people were confused when I was growing up because they would be like, well, I thought your dad was Muslim. I'm like, yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. he comes to Christmas dinner. What's your What's your point? <laughs> we also celebrate Ramadan. So. I also <laughs> and they were like, what is that? <laughs> All of that is beautiful. And just, you know, it, it, it's the makeup of who we are. It's the makeup of why we see the world the way we do. And, you know, anytime you have a, a group of women who can be confident in that identity, you create a stronger pocket. You create a stronger mind. You help c- cultivate more creativity within that person. And, you know, if I'm looking at my overall goal in this world, you know, to, to create more a, a more equitable place for women in general, you know, I see myself more uplifting, you know, women of color, women of these multi-ethnicities. And, and that's my that's my place and that's my purpose and you know there's nothing wrong with creating um, a forum for people to have those conversations so mm-hmm. so tell me about your book that recently came out authenticity in America yes authenticity in America so <laughs> this book was also you know I tell people sometimes when I'm um, when I'm actually having like a book talk or I'm invited to speak about the book I tell them you know, I, I wrote the book, it took me about four or five months to actually write 
book. And, you know, I understand for some authors, like, you know, that's crazy. Like how, how, you know, that's such a short amount of time. And what I tell them is, you know, the event to, you know, that led to me writing the book took a lifetime. So, so it's all been brewing in my head for a very long time. And sometimes these um, events would happen in my life. And I think to myself, oh my God, like, this has got to be either made for a movie or made for a book or something because I got to write about this, right? <laughs> uh, I got to write about this. So I did. Um, I, I had a really great opportunity to, to step back from, you know, this mainstream type of life and uh, a couple of years ago and, um, you know, think through what were the things that I wanted to do? What are some of these um you know, these uh, different avenues for which I want to fulfill my purpose. And Authenticity in America is one of them. It's it's a book about living this life of a dual identity within America and how it contributed to my identity as an American. Uh, And, you know, I truly feel like right now it's it's not just individuals that are having identity crisis in America. I think it's our country that's going through an identity crisis. And Mm -hmm. this is a microcosm of that idea. Um, Like, do you want to see why, you know, or do you want to know why I'm, uh, I am the way I am, or I, you know, why I think the way I do, then here's a book that gives you a snapshot of what that life is, what a multi-ethnic life looks like. And, you know, it's about family and it's about failed relationships and our, you know, what, what do we seek for um, in our spiritual life? And, um, you know, where, where do we find our purpose and how that all sort of wraps up? this crazy, you know, this crazy show we called life. (laughs) So so this is a, a, it's a, it's a, it's a collection of those memories and and how it contributes to that question. Who did you write it for? I wrote it for myself. (laughs) (laughs) I had such a self-centered thing to say, but I, you know, I really did. I I had to step back because there was so much, you know, when I first started writing the book, I think I had like 10 pages and (laughs) I had a really great coach sort of walk me through, you know, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And there was a healing in that. There is truly a healing in um, intentional reflection. And um, I didn't realize it um, at the time. You know, there are so many stories in here that, um, you know, they were painful to talk about. Um, you know, my divorce or my marriage um, being one of them or, you know, this sort of like continuous rebellious state I always feel like I'm in. Like those are very intimate topics. And, you know, for for me, um, I really had to go through that healing to trace back to, you know, my own place and, and you know, why I see things the way I do or why I feel the way I do. So mm-hmm. it, it was truly a healing, individualistic healing, I think, for, for me. Um, and, I, and I wrote it and I published it in the event that it could help others. And, you know, anytime I hear from someone who has read the book or comes to one of my talks, it's, it's, it's validating. It's validating that there are these pockets of women who really do feel and, you know, sh- share those similar experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, I think most writers write for themselves in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why else would you start writing? <laughs> like, honestly. Yes, truly, truly, truly. And it's just like, you know, I started this podcast kind of for myself because I wanted to hear about the stories that I just wasn't going to hear. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that other people wanted to hear them too. You know? <laughs> and that is an awesome thing, right? There you go, yeah. creating community. <laughs> Or fostering community, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you go into it thinking probably no one's going to read this book. Like, I went into this podcast thinking no one's going to listen to this podcast. It's going to be like me (laughs) and my grandmother and a a handful of friends, and that's going to be it. (laughs) 
You know, it's lovely, right? It's a, it's great when you when you have that validation that the community is listening, and that it just takes a voice. And and really, mm-hmm. it's, it's one person who has the courage to tell their story that gives. It, it's almost like that seed, right? You plant that seed for others, and then you um, you enable healing. And that, and that's what it is at the end of the day. We are in a constant space of of. Um, like I said, data intake, the more data than we ever have taken in in the world, and we're tired, and you know we feel alone. And what better way to to bring about that community than to talk about things that that have the ability to heal us? So mm-hmm. kudos to you, my friend. Oh, same to you. We're handing out kudos. We'll, we'll just keep. <laughs> let's do that. Same to you. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great. It's a great characteristic of women. You know, they're, they're yes. They're, why they make better leaders. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Shahir, what's the best thing about the work that you do? Oh, my goodness. It's got to be the people. Um, I work with the most amazing people on the planet. And, um, you know, they're all exhausted. And they're all going through their own healing process. And, you know, I, I just feel like the more I dig into the work, the more complex it gets and the more necessity there is to simplify our lives. And when I have found that community or work with people who, you know, start to see the world a little bit differently, um, regardless of where that is, and and just, you know, a, a simple question that might lead them down a path that they never thought that they would go, that brings me joy because, you know, I don't, I don't believe in you know, we all have these ideas of grandeur and, you know, this is what I want to do. Um, but at the end of the day, for me, it's about spending time with the people that matter most and um, knowing that we are living a life where we've all sort of consented to this, to this space of happiness or, you know, where we're um, this this art of contentment, I call it, you know, happy with each mm-hmm. other or we have agreed to grow with each other. Um, and that is what I, why I love the work I do. I you know, I've, I've traveled a little bit outside of this world, and I, I truly believe that we do live on the best in the best uh, country. I, I love where I live. I, I love America. I love the people that um, surround me, and it's just making this place a little bit better to to find that community that wants to do the same. Mm-hmm. Who are the women that are inspiring you right now? Oh my goodness, there's so many of them. Um, thank God for social media, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think a new one pops up every day um, where I'm like, oh my God, that, that one's got it. Like, how do I, how do I, you know, get a conversation with her or how do I sort of, you know, find my, uh, myself in the same space as, as her. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to keep this simple. I think my daughters, um, I have three daughters. They are, I have two teenagers and a little one. And, um, you know, they say there's this idea around psychology that, you know, the five people that you're around are sort of who, who are the makeup. Of, of you. And I mm-hmm. used to, you know, I believe that because when, when my children are younger, they were really, you know, being fed off of me. They were, you know, they yeah, were growing literally. results of me. Mm-hmm. You know, with my teenagers, I've sort of seen this, like, it's almost taken a 180 approach where now they're, you know, they're feeding me uh, and who I am and who I've become. And I see this strong women that they are and their personality. Um, my 16 year old is like this, you know, she's just a math genius, 
chemistry genius and she wants to change the world and take pictures of black holes. And <laughs> it's just like, you know, it, it gives me joy. And, and really, I look to them for that source of inspiration. Because I think if I had to sit here and talk about all these women um, externally, it would it would probably be a whole other podcast, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could. Now is, is a great time to enter <laughs> podcasting. I know. I hear. It's, it's a great content delivery. I totally agree with you. <laughs> it absolutely is. <laughs> Shahira, where can our listeners connect with you or follow your work? Um, a few places. I'm, I'm, I love my LinkedIn. I'll be honest. Um, I think it's because of that sort of, um, <laughs> you know, that this, there's so much, um, content out there today. And, um, I found, um, solace in sort of living in my professional world. Um, so I, I find a lot of people on LinkedIn. Um, I'm always connecting with my, um, with my community there. Um, you can find me at, um, shahiraq.com. Um, S-H-A-H-I-R-A-Q.com. My book, Authenticity in America, is on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. So, you know, feel free to to get to know me that way um, if you're a reader. Um, But, yeah, multiamericanmoxie.com. I feel like there's so many websites now. Um, Mm -hmm. I love, um, like I said, LinkedIn is usually my my place. So happy to connect there and, um, you know, happy to connect if you me on the web as well. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today, Shahira. Thank you, Tanj. This has been delightful. I appreciate spending time with you. Me too. I hope we can do it again sometime in the future. Absolutely. Until then, folks, that's our show for this week. Make sure you connect with Shahira. Check out her book, Authenticity in America, for sure. Amazon has all of the things, so just go there. Or go to Barnes & Noble, whatever your thing is. Just read it. Uh, if you are a hy- come from a hyphenated identity, you're struggling with that, know someone that is, or just want to connect with somebody, then I'm going to recommend that you get in touch with Shahira through Multi-American Moxie. Otherwise, if there is a woman that you think needs to be featured on this show, or if you are a woman that should be featured on this show, you know how to reach me, but I'll tell you again, send me an email to that's what she did podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to share this episode. And the best way to support this podcast is simply hit the subscribe button. Until next time, we're out.